Welcome to the series, Revelation, The Second Coming, with your host, Father Alfred McBride. This series explains the imagery found in the book of Revelation and brings encouragement to the faithful. Now, join Father McBride as he presents this episode of Revelation, The Second Coming. I heard a story about a battleship that was returning from maneuvers and it came back towards shore in near in the middle of a big deep fog the captain of the battleship saw a light just ahead and he instructed his lookout to say he said signal that ship and tell it to turn 20 degrees to the right and then from the light came a little signal that saying Uh, you should turn 20 degrees to the left. The captain told the lookout to signal again. He said, I'm a captain, you go to the right. And the light came back flashing, I'm a second-class seaman, you go to the left. And the um, captain is very furious and he says, I'm a battleship, change course. The sign came back, I'm a lighthouse. I think you should change course. Well, I like that little story for its application to our study of the apocalypse because in many ways all of these dense images about leviathans and dragons and um, harlots, whores of Babylon and so on, tribulations of all kinds, all of these images seem in many ways to all of us like a deep fog and how are we going to get through it. Last time we talked about the Antichrist and the beasts of the apocalypse. Who might they be and what about giving them political and economic interpretations applying to real history and real experiences. And I did some of that and I said at the end we would get into uh, perhaps some a spiritual responses to all of this, and I will, but I think I'm going to defer that uh, just for a minute while I take with you uh, chapters, um, well, I guess we're doing now chapters 16 to 18 of the Apocalypse, just to get some of the general picture of these chapters down. The 16th chapter of Apocalypse has the third set of seven tribulations. The seven bowls of wrath are poured upon the earth. Uh, One of the translations calls them the the seven vials of wrath. This pouring down of terrible things upon the earth. Please remember, as I said in an earlier program, that the, the three sets of seven tribulations all are part of a single picture. The first set, you may remember, was the seven seals. As we opened the seven seals, all of these troubles occurred. They referred to the general state of evil in the world. The next set, the seven trumpets, as each trumpet was sounded, another trouble or tribulation occurred. I saw that as referring to the punishment for unrepentant evil. And that would be a description of hell. I also pointed out that the seven trumpets are the reverse, the the troubles you see there, are the reverse of the seven days of creation. 
So the seven trumpets give you the, the decreation, the void and the chaos that comes. And now this third set of seven tribulations, the seven bowls of wrath, these refer to the chastisements that God sends in order to convert us back to Christ, back to the lighthouse, to the light that is always there. Remember I said earlier, we must look at the apocalypse as a book of hope in the middle of all these troubles, and always to keep our eyes on the one who sits upon the throne, the Lamb slain and risen before whom the twenty-four elders prostrate and cast their crowns at his feet the worship of the heavenly liturgy. So the lighthouse is always in the middle of these storms and of the fog and so on. One of the reasons I think we can say that the seven bowls of wrath are chastisements to convert us is that they are, four of them are exactly the same as the plagues of Egypt. The water turns to blood, boils and sores afflict bodies, hailstones batter the earth, and darkness vanishes the light. These are, of course, the same as the ten plagues of Egypt. And the purpose of those plagues was to convert and change the heart and the mind of the Pharaoh. So here it is again. And I think that is a wake-up call, in other words, for us. The St. John, after that, goes on to speak about the final battle of the world at Armageddon. Here again, this is a favorite image of the millenarians. The tribulations signal the end of the world, and then they signal the final battle. Where is this battle going to be held? Well, according to the uh, book of Revelation, it will be held at Armageddon. It's in chapter 16. The final battle between good and evil. It's found also in chapter 20, verses 7 to 10. And he calls, John calls the evil nations Gog and Magog, which he took from uh, the book of Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. Gog is the leader of the land of Magog, and they attack Jerusalem. Well, it's all very interesting and mysterious, and millenarians like to say, well, now where is uh, the, uh, this actually going to happen? Well, in Palestine, there just happens to be a Mount Megiddo, and that there, the valley of Armageddon, or Megiddo, Megiddon, that's where it's going to happen. And uh, millenarians see millions of soldiers marshalling themselves in this valley that is the battle between the Mediterranean Sea and the Euphrates River, and they will fight to capture Jerusalem. And those who fight for God will win and establish a new world order. And after a couple of months, the second coming will occur. Well, let's go back to Matthew 24:36. No one knows. No one knows the day nor the hour. And no one really knows whether this uh, final battle, as it is described here, should be taken so literally. I tend to see it as rather a symbolic, another one of the symbolic images that St. John uses for the theological battle between the forces of evil and the forces of Christ and of God. 
So I would see it more as a moral battle rather than, you know, some kind of a physical military exchange. And in fact, St. John seems to say the same. He says, blessed is the one who watches. Blessed is the one who is prepared, not for a military battle, but for the coming of Christ into his or her life. 1615. Religion's greatest problem is routine and apathy. One of the hardest things about religion is to stay enthusiastic about religion. Sloth and laziness are a major problem of believers. Now this apathy, and the reason I'm talking about sloth and apathy here is that trying to say on the one hand, the seven bowls of wrath, the battle of Armageddon, they're wake-up calls to us to wake up and renew our faith and our religion. If we are in sloth and apathy, what happens is our faith becomes formulas. Yes, I say the Apostles' Creed, but I never pay attention to what it means. Our worship becomes ritualism. I do this. I always do it exactly right, exactly the same time. I do it beautifully, but there's no heart in it. There's no enthusiasm, no feeling. As they say, play it one more time with feeling. There's a wonderful story called Mr. Holland's Opus. It's the story about a high school music teacher. And he has a girl in the band who plays the clarinet. And she's always um, playing, well, first of all, she's playing the notes differently from the rest of the orchestra. And she, the, the clarinet is always whistling. If you've ever played the clarinet, you know there's a reed in it and you have to have a proper lip to play it. And if you don't play it right, you get a little whistling sound. So she was always whistling when she was playing, if you will. So he took her aside and he tried to help her have more self-confidence. And he said, um, well, why don't you play a song that you love for me? Do one that you like. So she played this nice little love song and he, but she was still nervous and the whistling came out again and he said, now calm down, just play it as though you love that music. So she played it again and finally she played it without making any bad sounds. Thirdly, he said, now close your eyes and just play the feeling. Play the inside of the music. And she did. She closed her eyes and she played the clarinet and the music was beautiful, beautiful. Well, that's what we're trying to say here, that apathy reduces worship to ritualism. There's no music in the adoration. There's no faith in what we are doing. And finally, apathy reduces morality to minimalism and even to selective. We just do the basics, you know. Don't do the fullness of the moral life. So I believe those seven bowls of wrath would lead to something like that. That's why God sends us prophets like John who writes the Apocalypse. Prophets always afflict the comfortable as they comfort the afflicted. And that's what he was doing here. In the next chapter, uh, much beloved by certain religious groups, 
is the 17th chapter of Apocalypse, and it is about the Scarlet Woman, the Whore of Babylon. She's wrapped in a scarlet cloak. She's a prostitute. She is Satan. She rides the beast, the dragon, the leviathan, and the behemoth. All we've got here is those un that unholy trinity again, the dragon, the leviathan, the behemoth, and the scarlet woman is simply an embodiment of Satan riding these beasts. That's all it means. It's simply another picture of the same thing. It is an image of the Antichrist, of the beast. So please remember what we've already said about how these beasts and antichrists are to be understood. Um, you might be interested to know that Luther and Calvin, during the heated exchanges between the papacy and the reformers, the Protestant reformers, they called the Pope the Whore of Babylon. This was quite popular in anti-Catholic literature of the 19th century, and I guess it will come back again. However, all it is doing is adding another picture of the same thing that we have seen so often. All of these things are prophecies of the fall of Rome and the fall, really, of all tyrannies. Fall of Rome and the fall of all tyrannies. They do have something to do with the end of the world. There is no doubt about that. And um, I just have a little remark here about the end of the world. Um, we'll come back to it off and on, but um, the apocalypse is certainly, in the last couple of chapters, is genuinely about the end of it all. But all of these other pictures, these tribulations we've been looking at, can be about the end of cultures, the end of nations, the end of empires. We can never know when the real end of the world is going to occur, but we can reasonably foresee the end of a culture, the end of an empire. People began to see the end of the communist empire before it actually happened. And um, people are seeing the end of the culture in which we find ourselves. Some say we are leaving industrial culture, going into computer and technological culture. All right, so it's not all that hard uh, to see the end of things. And uh, sometimes we're, we do have people who write about the end of the world. I um, came across that here in the, uh, not so much the end of the world, but the end of cultures, empires, and nations in the, uh, it's in the 17th, let's see, it's in the 18th chapter, verses 22 and 23. And i like to just give you the five qualities that are given here about the end of a culture. Now, what St. John is talking about is the end of Babylon, which, he mean, which is a code word for Rome. So he's saying, bad as it is now, it will disappear. And in fact, he says that in 90, the Roman Empire did collapse in 476. So it took a long time, but it did do it. Here's what he said are five characteristics of the end of an empire, the end of a world. Of course, eventually the end of the world. 
in uh, verses 22 and 23 of chapter 18. First of all, the music stops. Music is usually associated with happiness, celebration, and joy. But no melodies will ever be heard again in Babylon, so he says here. Secondly, productivity will cease. The monks of the Middle Ages had a saying that, that went like this. Diligence begets abundance. Abundance begets laxity. And laxity begets decay. And that happens in countries and empires and cultures. When you're diligent, you know, you create a lot of wealth, a lot of productivity. And then when you get rich, um, you beget lax. You get soft. You get fat. So, uh, diligence begets uh, abundance, abundance begets laxity, and then the third step is that laxity begets decay and corruption. St. John says this happens in empires. Productivity ceased. In verse 22b, no craftsman in any trade will ever be found in you again. The third characteristic of the decline of a culture is that family life disintegrates. It says in verse 22c, no sound of the millstone will ever be found in you again. And what he's referring to here is that families had millstones in their homes and it was the millstone that ground the grain that made the flour which was used for bread and um, the substance basically of their family meals. So, the happy noise of family life is gone. It's a powerful biblical analysis, isn't it? No music, no productivity, the end of family life because of the corruption of the culture. The fourth characteristic is that the lights will go out. It says here, no light from a lamp will ever be seen in you again. On the eve of World War II, commentators said, the lights went out all over Europe, and there was an end of an age, an end of an era. And then the fifth characteristic is the weddings stopped. Marriage is the necessary for the continuance of the race, the culture, and the family. In Roman times, the lifespan was 30 to 35 years of age. Infant mortality rates were high. Only four people in a hundred ever lived to be 50, and fewer women became that old because so many died in childbirth. So a family was very concerned about its wealth and its continuity. That's why it wanted all the children to get married and have more children. But now the wedding stopped. It says in verse 23, No voices of bride and groom will ever be heard in you again. So I just refer you to chapter 18, verses 22 and 23, to read the apocalyptic description of the decline of a culture, the end of a world. Put it another way, the end of a world. Not necessarily the end of the whole thing. So there will be a good deal of talk about that in Apocalypse because John is telling the people, his own parishioners, this world that is persecuting us will come to an end. He's not saying the world itself will come to an end. 
I had said to you before in the last program that I'd like to make a few remarks about not approaching the apocalypse in a defensive manner or a fearful manner. After all, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, he has conquered evil, and there is no need for us to be uh, defensive about it. I refer you to chapter 14. I'd like you to go back and read that. There's three wonderful lessons there about how to approach all these beasts and um, these bowls of wrath and trumpets and seals, all of these tribulations of the apocalypse. I think chapter 14 gives you a very good approach. It speaks about worship. The, la the Lamb is leading worship. Secondly, sermons of the three angels from a pulpit that is in mid-heaven. And thirdly, the Son of Man harvesting the saved, the white uh, harvest which is white with the saved people. It's all in chapter 14. First of all, in other words, what, what is our job in the middle of all of this tribulation that we are seeing here? First of all, it is our job as believers to worship. And at the act of worship and the celebration of the Holy Eucharist, Jesus turns our misunderstandings and our misconceptions of life into truth. At the Eucharist, Jesus straightens us out, both at the worship in the Mass and in the adoration of the reserved presence. So Jesus takes our lives, turns them around, and as it says in one of the apocalyptic passages, makes us spotless. He cleanses us, as he does also in the sacrament of reconciliation. And therefore, we have to see that at Eucharist we are not wasting time, as some would say, singing songs, adoring God, and offering sacrifice. Now, some people find that funny, but and especially Americans find it funny because they say, yes, well, all right, let's go and worship and then let's go out and do something. But at worship, we are doing something. The word liturgy means laos ergon, the work of the people. It looks like non-activity, but actually Jesus is acting in the liturgy and... Um, he is already working in the world to change us to what we need to be changed to. Excessive activity is typical of those who do not live by grace. So, first of all, the act of worship. That's why there is so much in the apocalypse about the worship of the Lamb. Remember the adoration of the Lamb. Every time we get sunk in the mire of the seven seals and the seven trumpets and so on, John brings us back to heaven, to the heavenly choirs and the worship and the liturgy. Secondly, chapter 14 shows three angels between the sky and earth in mid-heaven preaching the Word of God. The Word of God is proclaimed in awe and adoration among those who worship. Now, the great word of God, as you know, is often silenced. It is silenced because we close the Bible, we close the catechism, we close the teachings of the church, we don't read them. But in doing that, 
we miss a great deal. We, we stop hearing the Word of God because we have closed the books or because we allow the noise of everyday life to take over. Now, preaching the Word of God, as I hope I'm doing here and so many of the good people here at Eternal Word Television Network do, preaching the Word of God is taking the silence out of the Word. We're putting noise back into the Word of God, if you will. The world is full of information overload. The Word of God comes from mid-heaven, where it's not information overload. It's what we've always heard. There's nothing new being said except the good news of that we are being saved by Jesus Christ. I think that what we have to do right now is keep telling the truth. Keep speaking the truth of Christ, the teachings of the church, the teachings of the Bible, the teachings of the catechism. Just keep saying it. Paul VI said that there is an intrinsic attractive quality to the Word of God. And what it needs is someone to say it with enthusiasm and faith. And finally, the third thing, worship, preaching, chapter 14 says we need to lead a holy life. We need to lead a holy life in word and deed and witness so that the love and presence of Jesus Christ can be experienced. No act of faith is private. And so you say, yes, I'm leading a good and holy life, but who knows? It's not true. Every time we perform an act of faith, hope, and love, it, it isn't private. In fact, the more religious it is, the more deep it is, the more it leaps out of our soul and influences the world. You don't have to be a politician to influence the world. If you are a witnessing believer, you can do more you can move mountains, as Jesus said. We live between, unhappily, we live between the dragon and the lamb. Which way do you want to go? Do you want the pretensions and the pomposity of the dragon, the politics of the Leviathan, or do you want the politics of the lamb, the meekness and quietness of the lamb? The Leviathan and the dragon parade in splendor, and the meek lamb goes through the farmyard, invisible and quiet, but he brings power and love. What we therefore have to choose between is the power of coercion, which evil uses, and the power of grace, which God uses, which Christ uses. The amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved all of us. You know, we were blind and now we see. We were lost and now we are found. So, chapter 14, I think, gives us what we need to do to get out of any sense of defensiveness. So now, next time, be sure you read chapters 19 and 20. We are getting now to the millennium, and we have some very interesting and important things to say. So read the Bible, and God bless you for joining us today. This has been Revelation, The Second Coming, with your host, Father Alfred McBride. Join us again at the same time next week for another episode of Revelation, The Second Coming.